0: are gone and forgotten, our buildings will keep on proclaiming that here have lived people who had a heart for the needs of children. Reverend Klein, 1929.
1: Even though the buildings are gone, my son Andy and I have uncovered the long forgotten stories of the people who lived there, worked there, and died there. They were at the same time ordinary and extraordinary, and we hope you will be inspired by the sacrifices they made by sharing their stories we ensure that the people who had a heart for the needs of children will be remembered. Welcome to The Homes. My name is Karen Thaliker.
0: And I'm Andrew Newell. We're your hosts as we explore the challenges and joys of life at an institution housing orphans and old folks in rural Iowa during the year 1929. Welcome to August of 1929. As we've learned more about the world in 1929, Sometimes it feels as though the world hasn't changed much. But then other times we find a story and understand that a lot has happened in the world since the Kleins and the children and the old folks were living outside of Muscatine down on Burlington Road. There were two front page stories in the Muscatine Journal on August 1st, 1929, that really caught our attention. The main headline read, Groff Zeppelin on way. Big Dirigible seeks to avoid meeting storm hopes to reach New York early Sunday morning. A dirigible is a steerable balloon. Today we are familiar with blimps, but a zeppelin was different in that a zeppelin had a metal skeleton and blimps do not. Zeppelins were named after the famous German airship pioneer named Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Graf in German is a sign of nobility and means count in English, so the airship was named Graf Zeppelin. It was making news in 1929 because the American newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, had agreed to help fund a round-the-world trip for the Zeppelin on the condition that the journey would begin and end at Lakehurst, New Jersey. On August 1, 1929, the papers were reporting that the Graf Zeppelin had left Germany and was headed to Lakehurst to start the trip. It arrived in the U.S., then left on August 8th for the first part of the journey. It landed back in Lakehurst on August 29, 1929. It was the fastest circumnavigation of the globe at the time, and the first time that the Pacific Ocean had been crossed by any kind of aircraft. The flying time itself was about 12 days, but the entire trip took 21 days.
1: The other headline that reminded us that 1929 really was a long time ago read, "'No, I'll never retire, Edison advises press,' Wizard answers questions as boys take final test. Thomas Edison, perhaps America's greatest inventor, was 82 years old in 1929 and taking questions from reporters. He would die about two years later. Edison was sponsoring a contest where a boy from each state in the District of Columbia would compete for a four-year scholarship and recognition as the brightest boy in America. His answers to the questions posed to him were interesting. He was asked, What do you think about the future of talking pictures? Now keep in mind Edison invented motion pictures. Edison responded to the question this way. Without great improvements, people will tire of them. Talking is no substitute for the good acting we have had in silent films. Another question. Is there not a danger of serious unemployment if so much weight is laid on college and technical education and too many are turned out for the requirements of industry? Industry is getting so complex, Edison said, that there is an immense shortage of the right kind of men to manage affairs. This is getting more serious every day as science discovers new phenomena. And how about this? Do you consider the will to work and facing of realities of life as important for the youth of America as a first-class education? He responded this way. There are three things that ensure success. Ambition, imagination and the will to work. Of these, the will to work accomplishes the most. Education of the right kind gets quicker results. The final question to Mr. Edison was this, do you think that the scientific experimental field affords as great opportunities to women as to men and why were girls not included in this contest? Edison responded, nearly as great The first experiment was with boys as they act in wider fields. Of the 49 boys in the contest, it would be Wilbur Houston, the representative of the state of Washington, who was crowned the smartest boy in America. At the time, he was described as a modest 16-year-old boy with horn rimmed glasses and a distinct scientific inclination. Wilbur Houston would die in 2006 at the age of 93. A New York Times obituary recounted his selection as the brightest boy and noted that he eventually had a career at NASA, where he was one of the nation's first rocket scientists.
0: The Holmes newsletters from the first several months of 1929 had been filled with such urgent pleas for money, it appears that, although still in desperate need of funds, maybe the editor and Reverend Klein thought after a successful Orphan's Day celebration, they needed to give their readers a break and take a more positive tone, at least for the time being. The front page of the Messenger newsletter for August had an essay entitled Bubbles. It was written by an author named May Lounsbury Wells. The newsletter would often contain articles from other publications. The author, Miss Wells, appears to be most well-known for a biography entitled Boy of the Woods about John James Audubon that was directed to younger readers. In trying to figure out where the editor of The Messengers would have found Miss Wells' Bubbles essay, we ran across a publication from 1927 entitled The Welfare Magazine. It appears to have been printed by the Illinois Department of Public Welfare on a regular basis, and included articles about social work and social welfare. The essay Bubbles was included in a 1927 issue. Perhaps the editor of the newsletter, or Reverend Klein, or someone else affiliated with the Holmes read it, and thought it would make a nice addition to the newsletter. Bubbles, just like so many other examples we found, illustrates that although much has changed in the world since August of 1929, much has stayed the same.
1: Bubbles by May Lounsbury Wells Man is forever blowing bubbles, tremulous bubbles full of iridescent dreams. Were this not true, life would be a weary, irksome grind. The man with vision is able to see in the wraith-like beauty of the new blown bubble, fulfillment of his hopes, his aspirations, and of his deepest prayers. He, for the moment, reaches out from the stifling world into the realms of imagination and faith. And yet, oftentimes bound up in beauty unsurpassed, are human frailties, mistaken ideas of life and its purpose, Then suddenly, as these glorified spheres assume the magnitude of might, they turn to limpid froth and foam, just bubbles fading into nothingness. Bubble dreaming has its place. It prevents us from sinking into the substrata mire of mere existence. It gives us faith in eternity. It invests one with the courage to look at the sunny side of life. It imparts the will to go on, to do, and to achieve. Just when to dream, just how to dream, and just what to weave into the fabric of the dream presents itself as one of man's chief problems. Have not character building and contemplation of spiritual values often been left until we have materialized our castle, our chattels, and our worldly fame? Then we say, with time, fortune, and fame, we will investigate— we will make ourselves worthy of the throne for which we have slaved. But the time never comes, and the fortune and fame, some way, do not satisfy. There are always bubbles, and bubbles, and more bubbles to be blown, and these too seem to leave in their wake an empty trail of ringing, stinging spindrift. We can, if we will, make of our gossamery world the substance of reality. We can weave into the chameleon dreams, kindness, sympathy, love, discretion, loyalty, and honesty. We can drop back into the simple, easy gate of our long-forgotten yesterdays. We can make our bubble dreams impregnable and thus bring to our day's work the spirit of joy, the optimism of hope, and the shining glory of spiritual gratification.
0: August's newsletter provided additional details of June's successful Orphan's Day. They reported that with 1,000 people in attendance, there were far more people there than at any previous day of its kind. It also noted that people came over 200 miles by bus or by automobile. The newsletter also brought sad news of a supporter of the homes who died. The writing is heartfelt and a reminder of the dangers of farming. Reverend Klein wrote, Through Pastor Fensky of Smithfield, Nebraska, we received word that Mr. Henry Stale, a dear friend of our homes, was called to his heavenly reward through a terrible accident. While listing corn, his clothes were caught in the machine. When his son, at noon, went to the field to look for the father, who had not returned, he found him dead. Pastor Fensky writes, in him your institutions lost a very dear friend. He was the first to hand you a gift when you spoke here several years ago. The family, friends, and school children certainly acted in harmony with his wishes when, at the funeral, in place of a mass of flowers, they presented a mindicrance in his memory of $38.70, which they sent to our homes. These kind friends certainly have our thanks for this splendid thought. We also wish to extend to the widow and children our deepest sympathy. May God, the father of widows and the orphans, keep him in his sheltering hands. Kranz in German means a garland or wreath. The term Mindekranz is an old German term that indicates that mourners were directed to give a memorial of the family's choice in lieu of sending flowers. Pastor Fensky mentioned Reverend Klein speaking at the congregation in Nebraska. Reverend Klein actually traveled quite often to raise money and awareness about the homes. In later years, the homes hired someone called a field representative, who would also make these trips and spread the word.
1: Reverend Klein often spoke of the old folks and the children as, quote, our large family. At times, his columns would be signed Hausvater, German for housefather. In the August newsletter, he announced that two of the children had received their diplomas from the county superintendent and together with two other children of the homes would attend Wartburg College at Clinton. Wartburg College is now located in Waverly, Iowa, and we are actually recording this in their podcast studios. In Iowa in 1929, there was mandatory education only through the 8th grade. To attend high school or college, the children would have to pay tuition. If they could find a donor or a family member to pay, the child could attend. Otherwise, the children's schooling would stop after 8th grade, and they would continue to live at the homes until they turned
0: 18. When we read about certain stories or happenings in the Homes newsletters that only get a brief mention, We sometimes get curious and follow up to see if we can uncover more of the story. That's what happened with the August newsletter when Reverend Klein wrote about a special day for the children. Here's what he wrote. The White Star bus line gave 34 of our children a fine treat recently when they took them for a ride through Muscatine in one of their new buses. The Pearl City Ice Cream Company gave each child an Eskimo pie at the end of the trip. Then came another treat. Recently, 28 airplanes were here at the Muscatine Airport. A group of our children were permitted to go down and view them, and were overjoyed when Mr. E.K. Campbell of Moline, manager of the oldest flying organization, took them all for a ride in the mammoth trimotor Ford plane, over Muscatine and our own homes. We certainly are more than glad that these organizations are helping to bring a little joy to the hearts of these children. May God bless them.
1: The businesses and civic organizations in Muscatine time and time again remembered the young and old at the homes. Whether it was tickets to the circus or a movie or providing treats from a bakery, they did not forget the homes. The bus companies were especially important because the homes were located outside of town and transporting a large number of children was difficult. What got our attention in this story, though, was the reference to the airplanes. Reverend Klein wrote that there were 28 airplanes at the Muscatine Airport. This brought to mind several questions, such as, when did Muscatine get an airport? Exactly what would that have looked like, and why would 28 airplanes have been there? That seemed like an awful lot of planes to us. It was only 26 years before that that the Wright brothers flew their plane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in December of 1903. In 1929, you had the Graf Zeppelin on the front page of the newspapers. Aviation was new and exciting and becoming more and more accessible to average people. Many newspapers even had a special section of the newspaper devoted to aviation news. Iowa, it turns out, has a long aviation history filled with some of the most famous aviation pioneers, Amelia Earhart moved to Des Moines when she was young and actually saw her very first airplane at the Iowa State Fair in 1907 when she was only 10 years old. Charles Lindbergh flew in and out of many Iowa locations and in 1927 visited several cities in Iowa to promote aeronautics.
0: Iowa City, which is only about 40 miles from Muscatine, had Iowa's first airport in 1918. But keep in mind... These weren't airports in the way we think of them now. There were no Starbucks or duty-free shops. Most of the airports were really just fields that were designated for airplanes to land on. In July of 1927, an aerial acrobat who was in Muscatine as part of what was called a flying circus gave an interview in the Muscatine Journal, and here's what he said. There isn't a city in the country more fortunately located with respect to an airplane landing field than Muscatine. The speaker was E.V. Birdie Brooks, aerial acrobat in town with the Jewel Flying Circus. What are your big industries in Muscatine? The sash and door companies, gravel companies, and the button industry. All of them have or have had men on the road. Think what air transportation means to the traveling man. Instead of covering one state, He can now cover five if he travels by plane. It will increase his territory by that much, and in addition, he can get to a place when the occasion demands, within a short time. But here is the important thing. You've got to have a place where a plane can sit down, or in other words, a landing field. Then Mr. Brooks called attention to the Muscatine Island, which is level and which is close to the river so that seaplanes could land adjacent to the field and have plenty of room for takeoff. "'When we came in here,' Mr. Brooks commented, "'we flew over town and the surrounding country for a half-hour looking for a place to light. "'Finally, we lit in a wheat field six miles from town. "'Then we finally made arrangements to use a pasture on the Shields Farm near Spangler's Chapel. "'That was so much time wasted because Muscatine hasn't a landing field. "'It isn't profitable to fly if you must spend half a day looking for a place to land a plane. "'But if you had a good field,' with a filling station, water, a hangar, mechanics, etc. You would be surprised to see how soon the planes would begin to drop in here, and with what eagerness the commercial aviation companies would offer their advantages of quick service to Muscatine business interests. Muscatine Island offers an ideal place for a field. It should contain 80 acres, with a north and south and east and west runway, which should be kept in good condition. The rest of the field could be sown to alfalfa and thus pay a dividend. Commercial aviation is developing fast, and if any city or town wants to share in it, a landing field is the way to start. The article concluded, After which, Bertie went up for a view of Muscatine, riding on top of a plane.
1: Bertie was evidently something to see. An advertisement for the Flying Circus said, Don't fail to see Bertie Brooks, king of all daredevils, who performs on trapeze below plane and hangs by his teeth. A group of investors took Bertie's advice, though, and formed an airport corporation in 1928 to develop a landing field in Muscatine, and Muscatine was placed on the Chicago to Dallas airmail lane that year. In 1929, Muscatine's airport was really more of a landing field. So again, the question, why would there be 28 planes there, as Reverend Klein described? After a little digging, it turns out Muscatine was a stop on the second annual Iowa Air Tour. Up to 40 planes were on the 18-city tour, and there was a $5,000 cash prize and gold trophy awarded for races and other events. It was covered in great detail by the Iowa newspapers and included both male and female pilots. The gentleman Reverend Klein mentioned who took the children for a ride, E.K., also known as Rusty Campbell of Moline, was an early aviation leader in the Midwest and the plane Reverend Klein mentioned. The tri-motor Ford plane is sort of a famous plane. The Ford company produced a total of 199 of them from 1925 to 1933. It was also called the Tin Goose. If you've seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, they fly a Ford tri-motor plane in that. There's even a photograph in the Muscatine Library collection that we think shows the crowd gathered around the Ford Trimotor on a grassy field on the day the Air Tour visited Muscatine. How wonderful that the children could go for a ride in it, and how unforgettable that must have been. Earlier, in May of 1929, a Ford Trimotor plane made a stop in Muscatine. We don't know if it was the same plane, but it was also offering rides, so it may have been similar to what the children experienced. Here's how it was described in the Muscatine Journal. Passengers will be taken on 15-minute flights. The plane has a seating capacity of 14 passengers. It is fitted with comfortable wicker chairs and upholstered with green leather. No special clothing is needed to ride in the plane, which is as clean as a well-kept sedan. And no air pressure or disturbing sense of rising and falling is experienced by passengers in the plane. The pilot is a well-trained expert.
0: Following the airplane rally the children attended... The Muscatine Journal declared, 26 planes here in tour, thousands at local airport for spectacle. The article said, That Muscatine and vicinity has developed an air mindedness was shown by the crowd of several thousand which was at the field to welcome the aerial tourists. Pilots carrying passengers did a brisk business during their several hour stay here, and the huge Ford tri motored plane piloted by E.K. Rusty Campbell made repeated capacity trips over the city. The huge Ford airliner, which was parked beside the tiny island sports ship on the deadline, afforded a vivid contrast in size for the spectators, many of which gained their first impression of the difference in airplane construction today.
1: News of the airplane ride was not the only positive story in the August newsletter. Reverend Klein also recounted the adventures of the old folks who wanted to go fishing before a new law went into effect. Despite all their hardships, they continued to enjoy simple and special moments. Our old men, who had read about the new law, wanted to take the opportunity to fish once more before the new law went into effect. Of course, they expected a great catch, and for this reason made elaborate preparations in matter of tackle and especially bait. The opinions were many and far apart, Some held for rainworms, others held out for minnows. One man claimed that green peas were the only suitable bait to offer a real fish. Then there were those who made similar claims for liver, raw potatoes, macaroni, onions, and turnips. One of our men claimed that bread balls were the only tidbits which would persuade a full-sized carp to leave his watery home. He tried to substantiate his claim by stating that he had seen it work. So he made a goodly number of such balls, which he filled with cotton. Why the cotton, he did not seem to know. So early at four o'clock one morning, the fishermen left with a splendid lunch which our cooks had prepared for them. The lunch pleased the men very much, but the same cannot be said regarding the bait which they had taken for the fish. For the fish refused the bait, even when in desperation the old men spit on it. Our substitute cook, Miss Schlund, spent most of the day browsing in her cookbook looking for suitable recipes to prepare the fish. Miss Teresa, who has gone on her vacation, wrote that probably Miss Mariana would be compelled to suspend the menu for a time so that all of the anticipated fish could be used. But the men came home without any fish. Of course, sarcastic remarks were not missing during supper at the table of the old men, but they took it in good nature and laughed quite a bit about it. Even if they did not catch any fish, they had a good time.
0: As August comes to a close, the Graf Zeppelin is making its way back to Germany. In Muscatine on Burlington Road, life at the homes is focused on the school on the hill starting up after summer break, the upcoming harvest, and also getting ready to host visitors in September. In Washington, D.C., the Democrats and Republicans are arguing over the tariff bill, and September will bring warning signs of the stock market crash to come in October. We hope you will join us for our next episode as we learn more about life at the homes in September of 1929. This podcast was researched and hosted by Andrew Newell and Karen Thaliker, and sound was edited by Robert Newell. Special thanks to Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa, for the use of their podcast studio.
1: If you have additional stories and information about the Lutheran homes of Muscatine from 1921 through 1941, please send us a direct message on our Instagram at Life at the Homes.